Amen. So we're talking about trusting God on the journey. You know, and we've been talking about perception, how perception leads to self-talk, which leads to behavior, and how we, sometimes we see things differently. And sometimes in, in um, you know, this journey we're on, sometimes there are signs that we get to read, and sometimes maybe we misunderstand what the signs mean. So I want to read you a little example here. Um, it says that the sitting on the side of, of the road, watching, for catching, to, watching to catch speeding drivers, a state trooper sees a car puttering along at 22 miles an hour. So he thinks to himself, this driver is dangerous as a speeder. So he turns on his lights and pulls the driver over. And approaching the car, he notices that there's five elderly ladies, two in the front seat and three in the back, wide-eyed and white as ghosts. The driver, obviously confused, says to him, Officer, I don't understand. I was going the exact speed limit. And the trooper, trying to contain a chuckle, explains to her that 22 was the route number, not the speed limit. <laughs> a, bit, a bit embarrassed, the woman grinned and thanked the officer for pointing out her error. But before you go, ma'am, I have to ask, is everyone in this car okay? These women seem awfully shaken up. Oh, they'll be all right in a minute, officer. We just got off of Route 127. <laughs> That's my kind of freeway. Sometimes, you know, we miss it as we're looking for signs of what we should be doing and where we should be going. And we've been going through the book of Exodus really looking at this whole concept of we are people on a journey and God has a plan for us, and to be able to trust Him while we're on this journey is critical for us to move forward. And so, you know, God has this plan, He has promises that He's given us, and He's preparing us to do what He's promised to give us. And so the key for that to happen is that we really have to trust Him and then believe Him when He, when he tells us stuff. And so we've been kind of looking at different um, examples of that. Today we're going we're gonna to be in Exodus 7 through 12, and... Um, we're going to go through it all, but I'm going to top line a bunch of stuff. So if you really want to know what happens, you're just going to have to read it on your own. Um, but, but I really want us to, um, to, to understand that a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is a whole preparation process. And I think God is, is, is doing a preparation here of multiple people. I think Pharaoh is being prepared for what God is going to do. I think the Egyptians are being prepared for what God is going to do. Moses and Aaron are being prepared for what God's going to do, and the Israelites are being prepared for what God's doing. So God is doing, is doing a work where a whole bunch of people are seeing God in different ways than they've ever seen him before, because he has a purpose for them, and he's preparing them for what he wants to do in their life and in their future. And so there's a lot of things that uh, we're going to be looking at today that are really preparatory steps of God executing what he said he's going to do. And if you remember, God has a plan. The Egyptians, I mean, the Israelites are here, which is where? Egypt. He wants them to go where? The promised land. So he's got to get them from here to there. And that's a process because they kind of like it here. And so he's working on getting them to want to go there. And the other part is that there's a, there's a, there's a character called Pharaoh who doesn't want them to go there. He likes to keep them here. And so we're going to look at kind of how that, how that works out. And what I want to do, and I don't know if you've ever done this, but I, I've been doing this the last week and it's been interesting, is I, I want us to look at this whole um, section of Scripture through Pharaoh's eyes. 
know if you've ever done that before, but, but as I started, if I was Pharaoh, what would I be thinking in this situation? What would be going through my mind? And, and so we talked about this in the past, right? Pharaoh's a god, right? So Pharaoh's worshiped. He, he sits in the temple with all the other deity and they worship him. So he's a god. And so if I'm Pharaoh, I'm a god. And so here, here I am ready to do a little bit of battle with God, okay? So, so I, I'm, I'm God doing battle with God, and, and I really don't know who this Jehovah is, right? We talked about that a couple chapters back. It goes, who is, this, who is this God, Jehovah? I don't even know who he is, and I'm not letting you go. And then we talked a little bit about the fact that um, this God that he's dealing with is the God of the Israelites. And, and Israel at that point in time is what? Slaves. Pretty powerful people? No, they're slaves. So, so from Pharaoh's point of view, this God of the slaves can't be all that bad. Because if he was, these people wouldn't be slaves, right? So here we have God, 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 Pharaoh. Okay, so, so, so our Lord, the Lord of lords, the God of gods, the King of kings, you know, has to kind of ratchet himself up in Pharaoh's mind a little bit to get to where he really actually understands who this God is that he's dealing with. Are you with me? And Pharaoh, as he continues to go through this, because this makes sense now when, he's, when Pharaoh goes through, you know, plague after plague after plague, and he goes, yeah, please, Gavin, go away. He's just negotiating with this God. Have you ever done that? Just negotiated? He says, well, you know what? I'll, I'll give you 200 bucks for it. Well, no, 150. Well, 175. Well, no, t- I don't want it. Right? You, I mean, he's just negotiating with, with this God that he's dealing with. So that's kind of what's going on. So we're going to be in Exodus 7. We're, we're going to go through like six chapters today. So did you guys bring lunch? <laughs> oh, okay, I have to order pizza. So Exodus 7, starting with verse 2, it says, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, that he let the sons of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and here's, listen to this, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. I have a lot of preparation to do in a lot of people, and in order for that to happen, I'm going to multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. And when Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. Then um, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So God, God is doing some stuff. He's going, look, it, this is all going to happen so that I'm going to multiply my, my signs and wonders. The more I do things, the more people are going to know that I am God. And I want to make sure that there's no doubt in the mind of the Israelites, Egypt, Pharaoh, Moses, or Aaron, who I am. Because, because we talked a little bit in the past about even Moses' perspective, right? We don't know a whole lot of what happened when he was growing up um, in Pharaoh's court. All we know is that he was educated in all the ways of Egypt, right? And he was powerful in speech and, and intelligence and stuff. And then we don't know a whole lot of what happened in the wilderness. We just know that he got there and that somehow a burning bush showed up and he met this God and he was on holy ground. So we really don't even know how much Moses really knew about God. But we know from what we're reading in Exodus, what Moses is finding out about God. And so he's finding out some things about God that are, it's probably ratcheting up his awareness of who this God is that he's dealing with. And so here's the thing. God really wants to make sure that the Egyptians know that I am the Lord, as he says in verse 5. 
And that's critical because a lot of what God is doing is redemptive. I mean, the Egyptians don't know what they don't know. And so if God can help them recognize that he is Lord, then there's a possibility that they will begin to follow that Lord. And if you read Exodus 12, 38, and we'll get there around 3 o'clock, um, the mul- there's a multitude of people who left with the Israelites. So there was some redemption that happened as people recognized, had a choice to recognize, is God really the Lord, or are they going to worship all these other gods? Okay, so the, the understanding that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord is a critical element of what God's doing. And then the second thing that we see in this verse is it says in verse 6, so Moses and Aaron did it. God, I love that. As the Lord commanded them, thus they did. Now listen, we remember in, in chapter 5, yesterday we were talking about, right, where Moses came to the Israelites and God had told Moses, listen, I am the Lord. And then he lists like seven I will promises. Remember yes, yes, last week? Okay. Seven I will promises. And then at the end he goes, I am the Lord. So he sandwiched this, I am the Lord. Here's what I'm going to do. I am the Lord. And then Moses goes to the Israelites, right? And he goes, man, here's what God said. I'm the Lord. I'm going to do all this stuff. I'm the Lord. And what do the Israelites do? No, that's impossible. It's too hard. Pharaoh's too big. He's too powerful. There's no way that God can do anything here, right? Because they're so despondent, they wouldn't listen to Moses. You guys remember that? And then what did Moses do? He went to God and said, I told you it was a bad idea, Right? I told you I couldn't do this. I told you I couldn't talk. I told you they wouldn't listen. The people won't even listen to me. And now you want me to go to Moses? Are you kidding me? What cloud are you on? This is not going to work. And yet, in that whole conversation with God, what does Moses do? He obeys. The key is obedience. The key is obedience. We can get frustrated. We can get upset. We can argue. We can have our temper tantrums. We all do that, right? little temper tantrum with God. I don't know what you're doing, what's going on. This is all messed up. And then, then if we disobey, I mean, you guys who are parents, man, you have kids that will say, yeah, I'll go do it, and then they never do it. And then the other one goes, I always have to do that. You always make me do that. I'm not doing that. And then they go and do it. Which one obeyed? Right? Yeah. So obedience is key. And as we go through this, this is, this is a growth process of Moses and Aaron walking in obedience with, with their Lord and their God. And it's a process now of Moses watching as God begins to compete with Pharaoh. So it's God versus Pharaoh and his gods. Okay, so it's really not even Pharaoh's because it's only like three against a whole bunch. But somehow the three um, hold their own pretty well. And three means God, the Trinity, you know. And that's, I'm just going to preach on that like in two weeks, the whole Trinity and how it works and all that stuff. So come back. So, so we, got, we got God versus Pharaoh, I mean, God versus Pharaoh and his gods, and we're going to talk about how that worked out as we go through this cha- these chapters, okay? So we're not going to read everything, um, I just want to, to highlight some things. We all know the story where, where God sends Moses and Aaron, says, Aaron, throw down your rod, your rod's going to turn into a serpent, the magicians go, yeah, we can do that, they throw down their rods, they turn into serpents. A lot of what happens with the plagues and the competition that's happening between God and Pharaoh is, is just about every plague that happens is, is God showing the Egyptians and Pharaoh that he's more powerful than some deity that they worship. Okay, and the, the symbol for Egypt was a crocodile. 
And, and the, the term that, that says when he throws down a symbol is like some serpent, which, you know, is, is that symbol of Egypt. And, and so God just gobbles up Egypt. He's way more powerful than Egypt. And so the first situation that they face demonstrates, again, that God is bigger than Pharaoh. But Pharaoh says, that's nothing. I mean, I'm not even that concerned about that. And so as we get into verse 14 um, in, in chapter 7, it gets into where they really start working at it. The Lord says to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Station yourself to meet him at the bank of the Nile. And you shall, you know, take in your hand the staff. And then it says, when you get to there, touch the Nile. And he's going to turn the Nile to blood. Okay? And just like they did with the serpents, the, the magicians, you know, the Nile turns to blood, all the fish die, and the Egyptians have to dig wells to get fresh water. And the magicians are so cool, they just turn all those to blood. <laughs> That's great. And this is the thing about um, satanic influence. Say, Satan has the power to do supernatural things. It doesn't mean the supernatural things are good. It doesn't mean the supernatural things are right. He can just do that stuff. And so that's not something that should surprise us. But you know, if, if, the, if the magicians really wanted to demonstrate that they were more powerful than God, you know what they really should have done? When, when Aaron touched the Nile and it turned to, to blood, they should have gone, we can do that. And they should have touched the Nile and turned it back to water. Right? Now that would have blown some people's minds. But they couldn't do that. All they could do is just take what was a mess and make it a bigger mess which we'll see over and over and over again as we look at how this, this um, contrast of what God is doing and what, what the enemy is doing and, and how that works out in life. And one of the things I want us to continually look at is, is this whole relationship that Pharaoh has with God and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. There's really a condition that happens over time. Pharaoh hardens his heart, they move on. Pharaoh hardens his heart, they move on. And it gets to the point where God says, look, if you don't want to cooperate, then I'm going to harden your heart because I'm going to show people who I really am. And that's what we'll see as we go through these plagues. And as we, as we look at these plagues, they really do come after things that are, that are Egyptian God. The Nile was worshipped by Egyptians. And you can understand that if you're worshipping gods and the Nile provides all of your sustenance, wouldn't it make sense that you would really want to take care of that God? And so God is saying, hey, you know what? I can wipe out the Nile. That's no problem. That's easy stuff. And there's other gods that they worship that had to do with the Nile. But Pharaoh's hard in his heart. He says, that's okay. That's not all that impressive. We can deal without the Nile, and we'll figure out how to dig water, get, you know, dig wells, get water, and that kind of stuff. And so God comes in Exodus 8, and he, and he starts to talk to him about something else that he's going to do. So he says, hey, I'm going to come. I'm going to turn every, I'm just going to have frogs come out of the Nile. And there's going to be frogs everywhere. And so that happens. Pharaoh goes, go for it. So he brings frogs. Frogs come out of the Nile. Everything is full of frogs. I don't know if you like frogs, but, you know, I don't want to crawl in bed and have frogs all over, you know, the place. I don't want to pour myself a bowl of cereal and frogs jump in the milk with my cereal. I don't want to open the oven and my casserole turns into a frog casserole. I mean, there's frogs everywhere. They're everywhere. And Pharaoh goes, we need, to, we need to get rid of these frogs. So he comes to Moses and he says, Moses, you're right. Can we get rid of the frogs? And before that even, you know, the magicians were pretty genius. They go, you know, you guys don't like frogs. We're just going to make more frogs. And so we're going to take something that's bad and we're going to make it worse again. So Pharaoh goes, well, that was a bad idea. So can't we just get rid of all this stuff? And it's interesting when Pharaoh wants to get rid of stuff, he doesn't go to his magicians and say, why don't you get rid of all these frogs? 
They made more bad, they made more frogs. Why couldn't they get rid of all the frogs? Because they can't. And so he comes to Moses and, and says, okay, get rid of the frogs. And Moses goes, when do you want me to get rid of the frogs? And you know what Pharaoh said? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. So we got frogs everywhere. We're eating frog stew. We're stepping on them. Just frog guts everywhere. Everywhere we sit down, 20 frogs just turn into frog soup. And Pharaoh goes, tomorrow, just one more night with the frogs. One more night. But here's the thing that, that, that I think we need to really work through because we, we go, what, really? But, but procrastination is really deadly for us because how many times are we in situations where we know God needs to do a work in us and we know God wants to change us and God says, man, why don't you just stop doing this? Why don't you just stop going to that site? Why don't you just stop going to that cupboard for that drink? Why don't you just stop behaving that way? Why don't you do, and, and what do we say? You know, God, that's a good idea. I'll do that. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. I'll start. You know, you know, the first of the month is a good time to start, right? So I'll start the first of the month. I mean, we just procrastinate when God is calling us to do something that is going to bring change, that's going to allow us to serve him and honor him in a powerful way. And so just like these guys, Pharaoh goes tomorrow, and so tomorrow happens, and um, Moses goes, well, you know, we're really not going to let your people go. He hardens his heart again, and then God comes and, and um, you know, tells Moses, you know, we're going to uh, touch the sand of the, the earth, and it's going to turn into gnats. And one translation says um, lice. I mean, gnats I can almost tolerate. They're sticky and they get all... But lice, could you imagine? Just touch the, the dust and the, every, lice everywhere. And so there's, there's this, this, this plague that comes and it comes unannounced because here's how it works. There's, not, there's nine and then there's the last one. So there's, there's three sets of three. Two times he says, go warn them. The third time he just does it. Then the, the next set, two times he warns him, the third time he just does it. The third set, two times he warns him, then he just... So this is one that he just does it. He gave him the blood of the Nile, he gave him the frogs, warned him about that. He says, okay, well, look, we're just going to do the lice. Could you imagine all of a sudden, just lice everywhere? What if you like gnats, gnats everywhere? Neither one is attractive, but man, if it's lice, I am done. Now, now in this particular case, you know, when that happens... In, in chapter 8, let's go to chapter 8 and let's go to um, verse 18 and 19 because this is where things start changing a little bit. Chapter 8, verse 18, the magicians tried their secret arts to bring forth the gnats, but they could not do so. So there were gnats on man and beast, and the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. So all of his right-hand men go, Pharaoh, this, this is a finger of God. I mean, this God is bigger than we are. We can't do what he's doing. And the thing that amazes me, I mean, why would, we want, why would somebody want to do that? I mean, why? There, there's no situation where the magicians made anything better. Does that, just, does that surprise you? I mean, it's like, you know, I'm really struggling with, my, with alcohol and, and I really am having a hard time with alcohol. Doug, can you help me? And he goes, yeah, here's a case of beer. I mean, could, could you imagine that that's the solution? That, that, that I'm going to give you something that actually makes things worse and that's how I'm going to fix the problem? 
But that's what happens through this whole process of God coming to Pharaoh saying, hey, we're going to do this. And then the magicians go, well, we can do that. And they make it worse. Their solution is to take what's already bad and make it worse. And that's what happens when we get in the spiritual battle. There is nothing about Satan that says he wants to make anything better than us. But so often we believe that the thing he's telling us to do is really something that's really good for us. And we really should trust him and we really should listen to him and we really should do what our culture says is really the cool thing to do. And it never works out. And sometimes the solutions we get are worse than the problem. So as we go through the, the situation, we're seeing that as the magicians are doing or trying to do exactly what God is doing to bring some judgment on, they're just making things worse. But it gets to the point where they go, hey, we can't even do this. Pharaoh, you need to understand that this is the finger of God. And Pharaoh says, I really don't care because this God is not going to take advantage. He's not winning. And so Pharaoh still understands that this God is not that bad of a dude and he's not going to let him a win. I mean, if we really try to put ourselves in Pharaoh's shoes, um, you know, he's saying, okay, I know, but that's still not that powerful of a God. And then when we get to verse 20, um, he starts talking about he's going to bring this swarm of insects. And in verse 20 is another first. For he says, um, the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh as he comes out of the water, say to him, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you do not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and on your houses in the house of the Egyptians. There'll be swarms of flies and also the ground on which they dwell. But verse 22, on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarm of flies will be there in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. And I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow the sign will occur. And so it happens. So here God, for the first time, says, look, I am the God of Israel. And you want to know, you want to actually know that that's true? I'm going to have the swarm of flies come. And they're only going to come in Egypt, not in Goshen. So everything's going to impact your people. Nothing is going to impact my people. And so this is the first point where God starts bringing some separation between the Egyptians and the Israelites. These are my chosen people. I am their God. And so I am going to do something that's really significantly different. And so he's starting to help Pharaoh understand, hey, you're messing around with somebody that's way bigger than you know. And so Pharaoh starts negotiating. He goes, okay, well, you can sacrifice in the land. Moses goes, that ain't going to work. Because if I sacrifice in the land, it's going to be an abomination of the people, and they're going to want to stone us. You need to let us go. And he goes, okay, you can go. And then he changes his mind again. And so as we get into Exodus 9, God begins to um, bring a plague on the livestock. He says it's going to happen in Egypt, but not happen in Goshen. And this time, Pharaoh goes, well, look, I just, want to, I just want to check this thing out. So after it happens, he sends people to Goshen to find out if there's indeed livestock in Goshen because all the livestock in Egypt is dead. And they come back and says, yeah, not one of them died in, in Goshen. All the Israel livestock are in good shape. So Pharaoh's going, oh, man, this is not good. And so, so Pharaoh um, still hardened his heart. Then God says to, um, to Pharaoh in, in uh, verse 10, you know, take some ashes from the furnace and, and throw it up in the air. And actually that word is, is brick kiln. So that's what, the, is, that's what the Israelites were doing to make their, their bricks. 
So they were putting it in this furnace to harden the bricks. And so here was something that the Egyptians were using kind of as an oppressive thing for the Israelites to have to work. And God was using it to do something that was going to bring some judgment to the, to the Egyptians. So he takes that, he throws it up in the air, and then boils uh, form on everybody. And it says, you know, in this chapter, this is the first time in this chapter where it says that the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Up until that point, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Pharaoh was deciding, I am not going to change my mind, God. And God said, look, if you want to get to that point, that's all, that's all right. So we're just going to continue to move down that path where your heart is not going to be changed because I am going to do a work that is going to glorify my name and that is going to accomplish my purposes. And you've already chosen the path that you want to go on. And this is a challenge for us because there comes to a point where we may get to the point where our hearts cannot be softened. Up until this point, God is saying, hey, you can soften your heart. You can let my people go. And he knew that that wasn't going to happen. He already told Moses it wasn't going to happen. And, and, and like God knew what was going to happen, Pharaoh did not change his mind, did not soften his heart. And God says, okay, now it's for real. And so that's the first time where it said God hardened his heart. And in verse 14, he, he says, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. This is the message again and again and again that God is telling both Pharaoh, Moses, and the Israelites. is, hey, you guys need to know that there is no one like me in all the earth. And so then he goes on verse 16 and he says, you know, but indeed for this reason I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. And then he says, still you exalt yourself. And so God is, is having this little battle between Pharaoh and God, and he's saying, listen, Pharaoh, here's the deal. You are going to know my power, and you're gonna, my name is going to be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So here's the legacy. The legacy is God is going to be proclaimed as, as, as Lord throughout all the earth, and you know what Pharisee's legacy is going to be? I fought God and lost. We're going to put that on a pyramid. I fought God and lost. That's a legacy, right? Let's, let's leave, leave that, you know, in, in uh, history. So God is beginning to establish this understanding that he is God and he's going to establish the fact that he's Lord. And I'm actually going, something with, going somewhere with all this stuff. So hang in there with me. Then the seventh plague is hail. And it says that it was hail such as has not been seen in, in Egypt. And this is something where it really becomes way more impactful, I think, from uh, an awareness of the awesomeness of God. Because I don't know if you've ever been have you, in, a, in just a storm and, and, you know, hail is coming down and the wind is blowing. Have you ever been in those? And the hail is like this big around, right? But man, it is hitting you and you're going, ow, ow, ow. And you're trying to, you just got to get out of it, right? Imagine if the hailstones are like this big. Or have you ever been, you know, outside where thunder hit and lightning struck at the same time? And it just kind of goes, bam, and it's, (laughs) I mean, that that is like, oh. I mean, I was in Yosemite one time, and I was up on Lambert Dome, and we were up there just hanging out, me and this other person, and the clouds rolled in and stuff, and we didn't think much of it, and it actually happened. Thunder hit, and lightning hit like 50 feet from us, and just hit hit the, the, the dome, and rocks went flying, and I'm going, oh my gosh, we're out of here. I mean, that was unbelievable. Imagine what it would be like. 
I mean, Margie and I have sat out and looked at lightning storms where the lightning just comes and it comes down and it peels off in like four fingers and big old bolts and stuff. Imagine if you're in the middle of that and there's this huge thunder and then just bolts of lightning just are hitting the ground all over the place, just taking out cows, taking out trees, taking out everything. Could you imagine the feeling that the Egyptians must have had of the awesomeness of what God's all about going through something like that? Hailstones that are big enough just to be, be killing things. It, just, it was unbelievable. That's the stuff that's going on now. So the, the Egyptians are beginning to see a sight of God that is, that is unbelievable. And yet as it goes down and they start talking to Pharaoh and, and, and negotiating a little bit with Pharaoh, Moses says this in verse 30. He says, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord. Even with all this stuff going on, Pharaoh still had this thought that, hey, I am still a better God than God. And so he didn't want to submit. So as we continue to go through these plagues, um, Exodus 10, we start looking a little bit more at God's purpose. So in Exodus 10, verse 1, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them. So again, there is going to be no doubt of who I am as God. Are you guys with me? God wants to make it understood and very clear that everybody knows he's God. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my sign among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. And so God is establishing a legacy that says, you tell your sons and your grandsons what you saw happen here. Hand this down from generation to generation so that people know who this God is that you are following, who this God is that you are worshiping. This is the Lord of Lords. This is the God of all creation. This is the almighty, powerful God. This isn't just like the God of the Nile. This isn't just like the God of the insects. This isn't just like the, the God of the sky. This is, this is the God of all creation. And so God wanted to, to leave this legacy where people knew without a doubt that he was God, and that it got passed down from generation to generation to generation. And so as God does this, he sends locusts, and then there's darkness, um, and, and it just with the locusts, they, they actually come to Pharaoh and say, listen, you need to get rid of these people. It's, it's destroying our country. You need to get rid of them. Pharaoh goes, No. So, so everybody now is at the point where they're saying, we're done, we're done. Just send them off. And then there's darkness. It said it was so dark they could feel the darkness. And then Pharaoh finally came and said, okay. And, and, and Moses made the same demands, and Pharaoh goes, no, I'm not doing that. And he says, don't even come back again, because if you come back in here again, you're going to die. And Moses says, you know, I'm not coming back in. But let me tell you a couple things before I leave. At midnight, the firstborn of everyone in Egypt is going to die. And it's not going to happen to any of God's people. And when that happens, you are gonna, you're not just going to ask us to leave. You're going to demand that we leave. You're done, Pharaoh. You're done. And of course, that's what happened, right? 
God came, gave all kinds of instructions. Talking about preparation, all kinds of instructions to the Israelites. Put blood over the lantel, over the, your, your doorpost, and get ready. And they, they give them instructions on what to fix and how to be ready. And, and just a whole thing about what the Passover is all about. Some very specific instructions to prepare the Israelites for this. And when it happens, just like God said, Pharaoh came and said, get out of here. All the people said, get out of here. And just like God said, they started giving them gold and silver and all kinds of stuff when they left. And just so you're not mistaken, it wasn't so they could be rich because God had a purpose for all that stuff down the road. It was part of his plan. And so God went through this whole exercise with Pharaoh so that the, so that the people would know that he is Lord and that he is the Lord of all lords and that he reigns eternal. Now here's the final score. God, 11. Pharaoh, 0. Got it? God 11, Pharaoh 0. So let me ask you, what team do you want to be on? Yeah, the 11, right? I want to be on God's team. And here's the thing that I want us to, um, I want us to really work through because this, it's easy to read this and kind of go, okay, yeah, I want to be on God's team. It's easy to look at Pharaoh and go, what the, what was he thinking? How could he not get it? You know, Isaiah says this, he says, I am the Lord. God says to Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name. And he says, I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. See, I want us to talk a little bit today as we wrap this thing up about modern idolatry. We don't worship the Nile God. We don't worship, you know, the sun God. We don't worship, you know, statues and stuff for the most part. But you know what? We are in a culture that is so subtly full of idol worship that I don't even know if we understand it. And I think as often as God has come to Pharaoh to say, hey, listen, you need to, you need to let go. Um, I think God comes to us a lot of times and say, you need to let go. I mean, how many times, I don't know, that's probably not the right way to say it. Have you ever experienced a situation where you were just in a bad spot and you just went, God, if you get me out of this, if you just get me out of this, I promise I'll be good. I, I, I'll go to church. I'll stop drinking. I'll stop cussing. I'll just be good. I promise I'll even give that church. And, and, then, and then you get out of it and, and what do you go? Man, man, I pulled that one off. I can't believe I got that thing done. Man, that is unbelievable. And then we just move on our way. And we don't recognize that God has put us in positions to help us grapple possibly with some of the stuff that's going on that we're placing a higher value on than we are on the Lord. And it's so subtle for us that we don't even recognize it. That we say, Lord, Lord, and at the same time, we have other things that are way more valuable than Lord, Lord. When we really start evaluating it and you know, as I've been studying through this, this, this series, God has just been continually reminding me of things that I need to work through and helping me understand this whole concept and this whole principle. In fact, um, I, I probably am praying harder for Doug's healing than anybody else because I'm really tired of being beaten up by God every week. And it's really time that God starts beating up on Doug a little bit, you know? 
But you know, as, as I've been praying through this, God really helped me work through some stuff because let me tell you a little bit about myself as we kind of tie this thing up. You know, I, I've t- told a little bit of story about, you know, I grew up, you know, we had nine brothers and si- nine children, eight brothers and sisters. So I'm the oldest guy, two older sisters. And, and um, you know, I just, I was a doofus. You know, I was ADD. Um, when you have that many kids and, and my father left when we were relatively early and so we didn't have a lot of money and, and so not only were we kind of raising ourselves, but, but my sisters, they were nasty. I mean, they just loved to torment me and get me mad. And then they, I was fat and slow, so they knew they could beat me into the house. And then they'd lock the door. Yeah, and I'm madder than anything. You know what happens? I get mad, I kick the door, and my mom wakes up, and then who gets in trouble? Yeah, my, my sisters don't do anything bad. It's always me. So I'm always getting in trouble. You know, and, and when you're poor and you don't have any money, the only thing you eat is stuff that's carbohydrates. I mean, it was just, that's all we ate. So, man, I was like this big around and I was about this tall. <laughs> and so all I heard was, you're, you're doing things wrong, you're bad, you're in trouble. And then I go to school and I was poor, so the clothes I wore, I mean, I got made fun of because I had all these, these ugly green pants. That, that's the only thing you could buy at a thrift store. And I mean, and so my whole self-image was toast. And as I started to grow a little bit, um, I, I was by myself a lot. So I, I just did a lot of things by myself. I mean, we, my dad bought me this thing called a pitchback, and we'd put it in the backyard, and he didn't have time for me, so he gave me that thing, and man, I would stand for hours and throw the baseball. It's got springs around it, you throw it in, and it just throws it back at you. It just ricochets it. So I just would spend hours throwing that thing back and forth, and I actually developed some pretty good hand-eye coordination. And then I got, we, we moved kind of close to a school, and so I got a tennis rack and a tennis ball, and I just hit the ball against the wall for hours. And then we got a basketball, and I hit the ball a while, and I shoot baskets for a while. I just spent a lot of time by myself doing stuff. And you know what ended up happening? I got pretty good hand-eye coordination. Then when I started getting into high school, you know, I started getting involved in sports. And so I found out things like weight rooms and stuff, and you could actually work out. And, and then I got, I got into, you know, running and getting in shape. And by the time I was a junior and senior in high school, I was a pretty decent athlete. And so, you know, my senior year, you know, I, I, really, I really liked what athletes got me. I mean, I liked the fact that you could be on the free throw line and cheerleaders would go, dense dead raw. I mean, I'd go, yes! Man, that felt good. And you're in the middle of a game and you steal a pass and all of a sudden, out of, out of this mess, this guy comes out with the ball, and I'm dribbling down the other end of the, the floor for a layup, and the whole auditorium blows up. Yeah! And I go, wow, that felt great. Man, I began to like sports. I began to like what it made me feel to play well and to win. And, and so I became a gym rat. Man, I was in the gym all the time, played in junior college. When I got to four-year college, man, if there was a ball bouncing, I was there. Volleyball, basketball, I didn't care what it was, I was there. Humanities class, <laughs> forgot. And, and it, began, it began something that, that helped me feel good. And so you know what happened as I got into high school and stuff and I was playing ball and I was getting good at it? I really began to... Um, feel that same feeling with sports teams. I mean, I, I would vicariously be able to feel that same feeling when I was watching my teams play. And one of the first teams I started watching was a UCLA basketball team. And John Wooden was the coach. They did not lose. I loved it. 
Every Friday night, every Saturday night, I'd be watching them, and UCLA would kill everybody. Then I'd feel really good because that made me feel good. I love that. And if I'd have been smart, I'd have, I'd have been a UCLA basketball fan and a USC football fan. You know, then I never would have lost, except for USC's from Satan, and I just, even though I wasn't a Christian, I couldn't do it. <laughs> But here's the thing, you know, as I got older, I became a Dodger fan, I became a Ram fan, I became a Laker fan. Just anything that had a ball, I was a fan. And I, if there was a Dodger game on, I was home watching it. If there was a Laker game on, I was home watching it. If there was a Ram game on, I was home watching it. And not only was I home watching it, I was yelling at the TV. I wasn't just getting frustrated. I was yelling at the TV. None of you guys ever do that? No, no, no nobody else. I mean, I was yelling at the TV. And now, that, how dumb is that? But we do that, right? We yell at the TV. Why? Because we, are, we have such an identity built up with our teams that, that I was putting athletics way above God. And I wasn't a Christian then, but when I became a Christian, I struggled with that. Because, because who I was and how I felt and whether I was important and whether I was significant was tied to how the Dodgers played. It was tied to how the Lakers played. And in our culture, that's so subtle. I went and bought something from Apoyo Loco, and the girl that's doing the counter was telling me, I was listening to the Dodger game on the radio. So it's not wrong to do that. It's just if they get elevated. Well, she, she works at Apoyo Loco. She paid $200 to go to the game today. $200. She'd have to work like four months to make that much money. That's okay if that's your priority. But the problem is we, we make things and we value things and we vicariously live through things that we place above God. And God says, you know what? You need to get your arms around this. And, and I've really worked at athletics because um, I really was. I mean, I just, I, I, they were my idols. I mean, that was, I idolized that sports and stuff. It, 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 it did stuff in me. And, and, and the whole concept of winning is just part of it. I mean, I can play golf, and man, I'd lose my salvation on the golf course. <laughs> because it's, it's, it's ingrained in me, and it's something that, that culturally that God wants to say, Dave, you need to let that stuff go. And I think as people, I love competition, and I think playing sports, and I think watching the Dodgers, and I think rooting for the Rams, I think rooting for teams, I think that's healthy. But when I don't like a team because their coach used to coach USC, that's, that's a problem. When I don't like a player who's a Christian because his coach used to coach USC, that's a problem, right? Because now I'm, I'm behaving in ways that are just crazy because there's a God I worship that's, that's creating my judgment and my value system that has nothing to do with biblical principles or who Jesus is calling me to be. And so if, if you guys, well, I don't like sports, so I'm safe. Let me tell you another thing that God has been dealing with me about. Me. He goes, Dave, you're, you're like the biggest idol that I know. I mean, you're like the idol of all idols. I mean, you worship yourself. Everything revolves around you. Everybody should revolve around you. That's how you think. I'm going, no, God, that's not true. He goes, okay, let's just do some tests, okay? So I'm on the freeway. And, and, and the guy in front of me, I hate it when this happens. I mean, he, he lets like eight car lengths between him and the car in front of him. Do you, guys, do you guys know what I'm talking about? I hate that. Because you know what happens? It's those eight car lengths. Cars go in there. 
And they keep going in there. And I'm stuck behind this guy. And not only that, he lets eight more car lengths from the guy that went in front of him. I'm going, dude, get off the freeway. And God says, you know, you're pretty selfish. I mean, your, your world revolves around you that you can get so upset on the freeway about something that insignificant because you're so selfish. And I'm in a hurry to go everywhere. You know why? Because I want to get wherever I want to get, like right now, because it's all about me. It's so subtle, isn't it, how we become Pharaoh. And we go, you know, I, 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 I'm way more important than you are, God. And so I'll get to you, but I got a lot of things I need to do. And you know how that kind of translates into some things? Because you've heard me talk about sports and illustrations and stuff like that. And, and I, think, I think sports are, are, are really, really good things because it teaches us competition, it teaches us discipline, it teaches us stuff like that. But man, if you're in church and you're looking at the score of the game, there's a problem. If you're at home because there's a game on, there's a problem. One of the things that, that, that God has really talked to me about this week, he goes, you know, if you really want to know what your idol is, you always have to be right. You know, I, I, I made a commitment when I got married. I stood and I looked at Marge and I said, I am going to love you like Christ loved the church. And I really meant that. But from that day on, I, I would look at her and say, I am going to be right regardless. And, and loving you like Christ loved the church well, if we get there, as long as I'm right, we're good. But you know, it's really hard to, to, to walk in obedience to our Lord when your God is being right. When it's more important than to be right than to be godly. And see, when we can begin to say, look, at what is my value? What are the things that I value? And when we start looking at the things that we value and we say, does that place a higher, is that at a higher place than my relationship with God? Is it more important for me to be that person or do that thing than it is to walk in obedience to God? We have a problem. We have an idol that we're worshiping that God says, you need to get rid of that. And you know, we say, yeah, but tomorrow, the first, that's a good time. And so we continually go to sites maybe that we shouldn't go to because it makes me feel good. We go to cupboards and pull things out that we can drink because it makes me feel good. We, we you know, you know, spend money on things that we shouldn't be spending money on because it makes me feel good. I mean, there's a lot of things that we do that make us feel good rather than having our security in the Lord, rather than having our confidence that he's promised to take care of us and he's promised to move in our lives in powerful ways and he's promised to, to work out his plan in us. That isn't good enough for us, so we have other things that we do that feel a lot better. And then we just do those things. And God says, you need to stop that. I go, yeah, but... And then I go, okay, God, okay, I will, I will, I will. And then all of a sudden it comes and go, yeah, but it feels so good. I just love that so much. And then we go, yeah, God, okay, okay, okay. And then we go, oh, yeah, but man, that feels so good. I love it so much. I mean, we harden our hearts. And I'm here to challenge us to be a people that say yes. That say yes when God says, hey, you need to let that go. Yes, Lord. You need to quit making that a value that's a higher priority than me. Yes, Lord. You need, to, you need to, to, to walk in obedience to me, not because he wants to put some thumb on us, because he knows what's best for us. And if we walk in obedience, and if we walk according to his plan and his purposes, we're going to live a life that's free and full and significant and abundant and, and um, purposeful. And he wants that for us. But we can go through plague after plague after plague after plague and keep saying, 
yeah, 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 no. Or we can really decide, God, I want to know what it is that you have on your heart for me, and I want to be somebody who walks in obedience to what you're calling me to be and to what you're calling me to do. And that will set us free. That will explode in our community a vitality for Jesus that will be unmatched. When Jesus becomes Lord, and he doesn't become Lord here below all those other things that we've made more important than he is. It's a powerful truth. Man, if we could really begin to get our arms around it, what a radical change will happen in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are our Lord and that you desire more than anything.